You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is Welcome on the phone. Welcome in, everybody. Episode 427. It is Thursday. Really Friday now. It is Friday, September 10th, 2021 here on the West Coast. It is still late Thursday, but it is Friday by the time you are listening to this. And how about Top Brady? We all kind of knew how this Bucks cowboys game was going to end, right? Cowboys kicked the field goal. Oh, Jerry Jones pumping fists in the box. We knew Tom Brady was going to drive the length of the field and win. Great to have the NFL back. Great to have college football back. And by the way, Great to have three episodes a week of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Again, this week was a little bit quirky. Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. Going forward, Monday, Wednesday, Friday will be the schedule of this show. Excited to get you three episodes and excited for today's show. We are going to run through the Week 2 college football slate. Really, I think, interesting week, right? Week 1 was the big headline games, Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, Miami, whatever. This week, a lot of kind of show-me games. Oregon playing at Ohio State, Iowa playing at Iowa State, Michigan hosting Washington, Kentucky hosting Missouri, Arkansas hosting Texas. A lot of really good games. We will get into all of them. May talk brief Big 12 expansion as the Big 12 might add four teams as early as Friday. And then you want a mega guest, Torres delivers mega guests. That is because today, Jay Wright, the soon-to-be Hall of Famer, joins the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. That is right. Hall of Fame induction weekend is this weekend. Jay Wright is going into the Hall of Fame this weekend, and he joins the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast to discuss the Hall of Fame. He joins to discuss coaching with Team USA this summer with Kevin Durant and Damian Lillard and Coach Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr. He talks a little bit about his Villanova team in 2021-2022. He talks about the old school rivalry days back when I was at UConn, uh, when UConn had Rudy Gay and Josh Boone and all that, and they had Kyle Lowry. And so really fun interview with Jay Wright. I mean, when you talk about the Mount Rushmore of important people that have been on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast Jay Wright is right up there with Kirk Herbstreet, with Vern Lundquist, with Jim Calhoun, with Bob Stoops. I mean, on and on and on. I deliver the guests. Jay Wright will be joining me momentarily. First, though, let's get to, I guess you can call it the topic of the day during college football season. Listen, we are going to react on Mondays. Wednesday is going to be a fun show, but Friday is going to be the preview of the weekend ahead, and this Saturday... I think we have an actually very compelling day of college football. And it's interesting because, as I said a minute ago, week one, it was all about those big headline games. Clemson, Georgia, Miami, Alabama, UCLA, LSU, Wisconsin, Penn State. You spent all summer thinking about those games. How is it going to go? What is going to happen? How is it going to happen? And then next thing you know, we are already on to week two. And you kind of look at the slate and you initially say, eh, I don't know. Washington, Michigan, we really excited about that. Texas, Arkansas, are we rearranging the schedule for that? Iowa, Iowa State. I don't even I can't even find Iowa on a map. I'm supposed to be excited for the Cyhawk trophy. Give me a break. But what I do think, this is a very important week for college football. 
because I do think we're going to start to get some clarity on some of these teams in college football from the high to the middle to the low. And what I mean by that is this. Iowa State had some real buzz as a college football playoff contender coming into the year. Well, struggled in week one. If you can't beat Iowa at home, you're not a college football playoff contender. Michigan, I talked about it on Thursday's show. Michigan, this is one of the most important games of Jim Harbaugh's career. If you cannot beat a middle-of-the-pack Washington team coming out of a game where they lost to an FCS opponent, Jim Harbaugh, pack your bags. You're not the coach at Michigan that is at the very least going to keep them at a good level. You'll never, you might never get them to great, but you got to beat Washington if you're Jim Harbaugh. And then Ohio State, Oregon. We saw UCLA step up on a national stage last week. Oregon, it is your turn. Are you a team that is really a college football playoff contender? Are you a pretender? And it's kind of the same across the board, right? Texas at Arkansas, Tennessee, their first big game in the Josh Heupel era, uh, Kentucky, that explosive offense in week one. How good are they? We're about to start to find out. And so with that said, let's get into the week two slate. And what I want to do is preview the top four or five games, and then I will give you my week two college football picks. I want to start with Ohio State and Oregon. What I would say with Ohio State and Oregon is this. Ohio State, I think in hindsight, actually looked really good coming out of week one of college football. They were that opening night game at Minnesota. It wasn't always pretty. They were down late in the third quarter, but they end up, end up winning 41-27. to 27. They win by 14 points. And I think at that time, that evening, we were all kind of sitting there saying, that's Ohio State? Like, that's the best that they had? I don't know if that's the team that's going to compete for a national championship this year and be on the level that they were the last two years with Justin Fields. But when you look at Ohio State, relative to what all of the other playoff contenders, those elite teams did, I think you look at Ohio State on Thursday and you say, I don't know. But then you look at them Sunday morning after everybody played and you say, you know what? Maybe they're a little bit better than we thought. Uh, because they go on the road, they take care of Minnesota, they win by 14, and I thought C.J. Stroud played pretty good. I don't think he was incredible. I don't think it was a Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence type debut, but relative to everybody else, I don't think it was bad. 294 yards, four touchdowns, and what is indisputable about Ohio State, and we have Alabama fans that listen to this show. I'm sure we have Georgia fans that listen to this show. You guys can argue with me, Ohio State has the best skill position talent in the country. And I feel pretty confident saying that because Jamison Williams, who is one of the best wide receivers at Alabama, he couldn't get on the field at Ohio State and he left Ohio State and transferred to Alabama. And so when I look at Ohio State, I think that skill position talent was on display against Minnesota last week because five of their, all five of their touchdowns, excuse me, were plays of 35 plus yards. Big plays, explosive plays, but it's because they have so many playmakers on that roster. The, the freshman running back, Trayvon Henderson, looked good. The wide receivers, Chris Alave, Garrett Wilson looked really good. You got some younger guys that are coming up. This is a really, really, really skilled team at the skill positions. And like I said, when it comes to Ohio State, I think it's actually kind of indisputable that while they didn't look great on opening night, when you compare them to how everyone else looked, you start to say, you know what? Maybe they're probably a little bit better than we gave them credit for. Go on the road, play a Minnesota team that won 11 games last year, and they win by 14 points in a true road game with fans in the stands. Compare that with Oklahoma, who played at home. I know it was technically a road game because Tulane, because of what happened with Hurricane Ida in New Orleans. Oklahoma didn't look all that good. Notre Dame held on for dear life against Florida State, which I think is a good team, but not great. Uh, Washington loses to an FCS team. Iowa State struggles. Oh, by the way, Oregon, who we're going to get to into in a minute, has to hold on for dear life against Fresno. So forgive me that I am actually kind of impressed by Ohio State's 14-point victory over Minnesota. I think they look better coming out of Thursday than they did. Then there's Oregon. And I'll tell you this. Week two is kind of a really interesting time in college football. I talked about it on my college football gambling podcast. If you have not listened, if you have not subscribed, I encourage you to do so. I break down the games in much more of kind of an analytical way. But when it comes to, to, to Oregon, 
I'll tell you this, week two is really hard because you don't want to necessarily overreact to week one, but sometimes week one confirms what you thought all summer. And I kind of thought Oregon was a little bit overrated coming into this season. Well, what happens week one? They beat Fresno State 31-24, to hold on for dear life, barely win, and they now go to the horseshoe as a two-touchdown favorite. So the question becomes, why did I not like Oregon coming into the year? It's because while Oregon kind of is known as this super explosive, super dynamic, uh, they wear the cool uniforms, they're fast, they're aggressive, they score a lot, the offense wasn't really that good last year. Joe Moorhead came as the offensive coordinator, the former Mississippi State head coach. He was fired. Mike Leach comes in. But Joe Moorhead comes in, and you think this offense is going to blow up. Go back and look it up. First of all, they probably should have lost to UCLA in the middle of the year. That was my first sign that UCLA actually might be pretty good. They barely hold on to beat UCLA late. UCLA gets better late in the year. But this isn't a UCLA thing. This is an Oregon thing. The final three games... They score 17 points in their season finale. They lose to Cal. Not great. Uh, They backdoor their way into the Pac-12 championship game. Remember, COVID was a real thing last year. Washington could not play in the Pac-12 championship game. And so Washington is out. Oregon gets in. They win the Pac-12 championship game, score 31 points. But they only have 243 yards of total offense, and it's because USC turned the ball over three times in that game. And they score 17 points in their bowl game loss to Iowa State. And so when I go back and I look at Oregon, that is what I see. I see a team that really struggled their final three games of the regular season last year. 20, or 17 points, 31 points, but most of them came off turnovers, 17 points. And you know what happened in week one this year against Fresno? They really struggled against Fresno. Now they hold on to win 31-24, but much like that UCLA game last year, it was very similar from the perspective that They took advantage of some turnovers early by Fresno State. Fresno State, in their own territory, turns the ball over twice early. Oregon is basically gift-wrapped 14 points right to start the game. They're up 14-0. From there, the offense basically did nothing. Believe it or not, Fresno State actually outgained Oregon last week in that game. And so when I look at this game, I'm just telling you a couple things. One, I think Ohio State was probably a little bit better in hindsight than we gave them credit for on Thursday. Two, I am just not sold on Oregon. And three, let's never forget, home field advantage is back, baby, in college football. And I think that's a big theme of what I'm going to talk about in this week two preview. Because last week we had a bunch of neutral site games. We had Georgia Clemson. We had Alabama Miami. You know, we had these games that were played at neutral sites, Ole Miss Louisville. And when I look at those games, it's a lot different going into someone's home venue and having to hold on. Oregon going on the road in the horseshoe when I don't believe in this offense anyway. I think it's probably pretty close early. I think Ohio State pulls away late. I have a final score of somewhere in the neighborhood of 41-17. to Ohio State wins. I'm just not sold on this Oregon team. And I think Ohio State, if they can score 41 points at Minnesota when Minnesota is controlling the clock, trying to slow down the game, I think they score quite a bit here against Oregon. Let's get to the second game with Pac-12, Big Ten, kind of old school. It feels like the 1981 Rose Bowl. I wasn't even alive in 1981. But, uh, you know, Washington travels to Michigan. And this one's interesting from a few different perspectives. First of all, Washington, of course, coming off that loss to Montana last last, uh, Saturday. We'll get into that in a minute. But from Michigan's perspective, I talked a lot about this on Thursday's podcast. This is a mega game for Jim Harbaugh. And I'm not going to redo the whole, the whole spiel that I did that, uh, on Thursday's episode. But for Jim Harbaugh, what, what, two things are true with Jim Harbaugh. I, I, I talked about it on Thursday. Two things are true. He has not been the guy that elevates Michigan back to national championship caliber coach. Can't even beat Ohio State. They're not that bad, though, relative to everyone else in college football. This is now year seven. If you take out last year with the COVID year, the first five years, eight wins or more in all five years, nine wins or more in four of the five years, 10 wins or more in three of the five years. I know it's not perfect. I know it's not what you signed up for if you're a Michigan fan, but I'm telling you right now, 
there's a lot of schools that would trade Michigan's first five years under Jim Harbaugh for their five years over the same stretch. Like good schools. Like I'm not talking about Kent State and Fresno and Eastern Illinois. Like USC would trade their five years for Jim Harbaugh's five years. Florida State would. Miami would. Um, you know, uh, whoever. I, I can't think of it. Auburn probably would. But I bring it up to say this is that as good as, as Jim Harbaugh's been better than people give him credit for, but last year was a complete disaster, and this year is kind of like put-up-or-shut-up time, and this is kind of the game where he has to do it. You get a Washington team coming off a loss to an FCS opponent. I will say this with Michigan as well. I thought they actually looked really good last Saturday against Western Michigan. And I know it's Western Michigan. I know it's a Mac school. I know it means nothing. I know the team stinks. Western Michigan, P.J. Fleck ain't walking through that door. But when I looked and, and I watched that game pretty closely, Michigan, for the first time in a long time, they look like they actually have some explosive playmakers and skill position guys running back wide receiver. This is kind of an interesting team. And this is a team that looks closer in that one game to what a modern college... I'm not saying they look close to Ohio State. They're not anywhere in Ohio State stratosphere. But I think they look closer to what a modern college football team looks like than they have at any point really under Jim Harbaugh. First couple years, Jim Harbaugh, it's that physical bruising between the tackles, realizes he can't beat Ohio State. He tries to kind of modernize the offense, do that whole thing. Uh, it kind of works out two years ago. Last year, everything falls apart. This year, in that one game, they looked actually kind of good. And it goes back to something I talked about on Thursday. They've, they've updated their staff. They've brought in a lot of young guys. There's a lot of energy on that staff. And so to Jim Harbaugh's credit, he's kind of done everything that you kind of want him to do as a coach. Here's the thing, though. This is a game that you absolutely have to win. Washington coming off that loss to Montana. And I'll tell you this. I don't get all my predictions right. And that's the thing about this show, right? I do the segment where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. I'll probably bring it back next Wednesday. I get a lot of stuff wrong. I'm not perfect. I try to be. I claim I am. I do the whole AT. I get a lot of stuff wrong. But what I am telling you, I said in the preseason, I don't think Washington's good. Phil Steele on this podcast was like, they're a college football playoff contender. I'm like, really? You sure about that? Remember, last year they had a first-year head coach. Jimmy Lake takes over for Chris Peterson, who retired before COVID. Nobody can predict COVID happens. They don't have a spring practice. They've come back. They only played four games last year. But they were kind of this really impotent, stagnant offense. They have this quarterback, Dylan Morris, who really isn't – I don't want to criticize the kid too much, but I don't know that he's the modern college football quarterback that you need to win at the highest level in college football – so they have this kid, Dylan Morris. They go 3-1. and one. They rely on their defense. I said, they're not good enough to win the Pac-12. They're just not. I don't care how good this is, that is. At some point, you need to score points, and it showed last week. And so when I look at this game, I'll tell you, uh, Michigan opened as a five-point favorite. They actually were an underdog <laughs> in the middle of the summer. The opening lines came out, and they were actually an underdog. Um, they, they opened as a five-point favorite this week, though, and it is now up to seven. I don't know that I feel great about that as a point spread um, because at the end of the day, uh, Michigan with Jim Harbaugh, I know Harbaugh is trying to be modern and do this and do that. He is a guy that when he plays a big game against a good opponent, kind of that old school NFL mentality comes out of him. He wants to play close to the vest. He doesn't want to take chances. He wants to play field position. He wants to punt. So I think this could be a low scoring, interesting game. If I was betting, I would actually not bet it, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I would probably take the under, which was at, I, I believe, 48, 48 and a half earlier this week. We'll get to my picks in a minute. But I would not actually bet this game because I don't believe that Jim Harbaugh is going to open it up. This feels like a 21-14, 28-10, 24-10 type game. Low scoring. I do think Michigan wins. I do not feel great betting the odds, though. Let's get to some other games really quick. Uh, Iowa, Iowa State, okay? How about the Cyhawk Trophy? We're all Cyclones fans or Hawkeyes. That's right. Clear the schedule. This is the game that your grandparents, they put you on their knee and they bounce you up and down and said, son, grandson, granddaughter, you'll remember the Cyhawk Trophy in 2020. Like, no, okay, that didn't happen. But I'll tell you this. This might be the biggest Cyhawk Trophy, certainly of my lifetime. I'm not enough of an Iowa historian to know. 
This might be the biggest Cyhawk trophy in the history of Cyhawk trophies, okay? So Iowa was ranked number 10 coming into the year, into this game, excuse me. Iowa State's ranked number 9. As I said to start the show, Iowa State has some real college football playoff buzz coming into this year. I don't know that I totally buy it, but they looked really bad in their opener. They barely hold on to beat Northern Iowa, which is an FCS team, and Iowa just curb stomps Indiana. Final score, 34-6. And so because of it, I think a lot of people really like Iowa coming into this game. Iowa destroys Indiana, which was ranked in the top 25 coming into the year. Iowa State struggles against Northern Iowa. Everybody's got to back Iowa State, or Iowa, excuse me, coming into this game, right? All I'll say is I'm not so sure, and kind of let me explain why. When it comes to Iowa, they did beat Indiana 34-6. Great win, dominant win. They deserve the praise that they got from it. But here's what you need to know about that Iowa 34-6 win over Indiana. They scored 14 points off two pick sixes early in that game. Interceptions returned for touchdown. In that game, their quarterback, Spencer Petras, threw for 145 yards, 13 of 27 completions in that game. And so if you take out the two interceptions, they would have won 20-6, and their quarterback, 13 of 27, 145 yards. Does that sound like a team that you're totally confident backing this weekend? Because it doesn't sound like a team that I'm totally fired up to get behind. And so to me, I actually like Iowa State in this game. This is probably the biggest game that they have had on their campus in years. Last year they had Oklahoma, but there wasn't fans in the stands. And like, like This is a mega game. This is a huge rivalry. It is in Ames. It is at Iowa State. Iowa State's a four-and-a-half-point favorite. And I think they win this game, um, I don't know about convincingly, but I do think they take care of the, the, this win. This is another one I think it's low scoring, somewhere in the 21-10, to 21-14, 20-10-type range. But when you add in the fact that I don't believe that Iowa is quite as good as they looked last week, when I don't believe that Iowa State is quite as bad as they looked last week, and then you factor in uh, that the game is in Ames. And remember, Iowa State has not, there's no one on this roster at Iowa State that has actually won this rivalry. I do like Iowa State. Really quick, let's get to some other games. First one, a night game, Fayetteville, Arkansas. Old Southwest rivalry that will soon be an SEC East rivalry. That's right, Southwest Conference. Many of us were not even around to really remember the Southwest Conference. But... Texas, Arkansas, former Southwest Conference rivals. They will soon be SEC rivals. They play at Arkansas Saturday night. And Texas comes in even on the road as about a seven-point favorite. And this is what I'll say about Texas. I said it on Tuesday's kind of recap weekend episode. There were two teams this weekend that I genuinely felt looked significantly better than I was expecting in week one. There were some teams like LSU that I thought looked worse. There were some teams that I thought could look good, and then they did, like UCLA. I don't know that I was stunned that UCLA actually looked really good. There were two teams that I was genuinely shocked looked as good as they did in week one. First one was Florida State. Could have beaten Notre Dame. I think Florida State's way better than I gave them credit for. The second one is Texas. And I know it's easy. Texas is back. Oh, my God. What does it mean? Blah, 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 blah. I'm not doing the whole Texas is back thing. But they played a good Louisiana team. Louisiana went 10-1 and last year. Their only loss was by a field goal to Coastal Carolina. They beat Iowa State at Iowa. At Iowa State. Louisiana's a really good team. And Texas basically dominated them. They were especially good defensively along the line of scrimmage. Louisiana could not run the ball at all. And then offensively, I just thought Texas looked really good. That Steve Sarkeesian offense, they were moving the ball, short passes to B. John Robinson. They're uh, stretching the field with their, their wide receivers. They just looked really, really, really good. Now, maybe Louisiana's overrated. I don't think they are. They're 10-1 and and return their entire team. But I think Texas, there's, there's, there's a chance they might be like legitimately a top 15 team. Now, I don't think they're a top 5 team. I don't think they're a top 7 team. I think they might be a top 12 to 15 team, though. So they go to Arkansas, and I'll say this for Arkansas. Arkansas is kind of the opposite. They, you know, they take care of Rice, and you look at the final score, and you kind of say, well, they, they, they took care of business. They, they're good. Except here's the thing. It was 17-17 going into the fourth quarter. Arkansas scores 21 straight points. 
And the big concern, if you're Arkansas, your quarterback, K.J. Jefferson, who completed 49% of his passes last year, he goes 12 of 21, 57% completion percentage in that game. And so, so when I look at this game, I think it's easy to kind of sit there and say, you know, a uh, couple things. One, Texas is going to dominate. They're Texas. Or the opposite. Everybody overrates Texas every single year. It's one thing to do it at home, now to go on the road. I actually just think this is kind of going to be a low-scoring game. I, I really do. And this is one of my bets from my, 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 my picks, and I'll get into my picks in a minute. But when I look at this game, a few things. I don't believe that Arkansas is going to have a ton of success moving the ball against Texas because, again, um, I don't trust K.J. Jefferson. I think Arkansas is going to have to, all season long, face loaded boxes. And K.J. Jefferson, at some point, is going to have to prove that he can beat people over the top. I don't know that he can do that. On the flip side, Texas, redshirt freshman quarterback, looked great at home last year, last week. I'm not sold that he's ready to go on the road, and I'm not, I'm not sold that Steve Sarkeesian wants to open things up and let loose and go crazy. I think it's a little bit closer to the vest. I think it's a little bit tighter scoring. I do think Texas wins, but this feels like, you know, I don't know, 28-20, 27-20, things like that. I don't think it's this crazy high-scoring game. I do think Texas wins. A couple other games. First of all, Kentucky-Missouri. You know, Missouri, I'll say this. Missouri has a little bit of those vibes with Oregon coming into this year where I think everybody kind of remembers certain things about Missouri last year, and they don't necessarily remember, like, the totality of their season. They remember early in the year, Missouri beats LSU at home, another game that I believe was moved because of weather. Their quarterback, Connor Bazelak, throws four touchdowns in that game. Everybody freaks out. Oh, my God, this kid's incredible. This kid's the future. He threw three touchdowns the rest of the year. That was as much that LSU's defense was terrible as it was that Missouri's offense was great. And then when it comes to Missouri's offense, I actually thought Missouri, or when it comes to Missouri's defense, excuse me, their defense was terrible late last year. Final three games, they give up an average, an average of 50 points per game in their final three games. Missouri last season, uh, you know, again, we, we talk about the offense. We talk about how exciting that offense is with Connor Bazelak. That defense was really, really, really bad late last season in 2020. I know it was a COVID year. Things got weird. But their final three games, they beat Arkansas 50-48. to They lose to Georgia 49-14. to Then they give up 51 points to Mississippi State. That's a lot of points. 150 points in the last three games. They have a lot of work to do. And so now you're going on the road. You're playing a Kentucky team. Kentucky's a five-point favorite. You're playing a Kentucky team. Kentucky's really interesting. And I know I, I know I told you a minute ago, don't overreact to week one. But Mark Stoops promised to open up that offense this offseason. He kind of did it. Like, like, I watched that game against Louisiana Monroe, and I'll just tell you, they were throwing the ball all over the field like they're Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs. Finished with over 500 yards of total offense, 387 yards passing for Will Levis. And I'll tell you, Wandale Robinson, the transfer from Nebraska, who's from Kentucky originally, he is about as explosive of a playmaker as Kentucky has had that I can ever remember. Now, Benny Snell was great between the tackles, but in terms of catch the ball and go, Wandale Robinson's about as good as it gets. I actually do like Kentucky to win this game. And, uh, but really interesting game in the SEC. We'll wrap up a couple other ones. Pitt, again, Pitt at Tennessee, first big game in the Josh Heupel era. This is one, you know, I don't have a great feel for. They played twice when Josh Heupel was at Central Florida. Pitt played Central Florida twice. They split the games. First game, or most recent game, excuse me, was pretty high scoring. I believe Pitt won 35-34, maybe it was 36-35, whatever. Um, but I just think we need to see more from Josh Heupel and this Tennessee team. They looked awesome early with Joe Milton, the Michigan transfer. Then they backed off. They slowed it down. They weren't as aggressive. I'll tell you this. Pitt plays really, really, really good defense. I would lean Pitt in this game. It's about a three-point spread. But this is one ultimately that I will probably ultimately no strong opinion on. Just feel like i got to stay away from. How do the same NC State is, is traveling to Mississippi State? I'll tell you, I think NC State might be the second-best team in the ACC. Uh, they are really good. They played really well last year. They won nine games. They actually played a, a full normal ACC schedule. 
their starting quarterback, Devin, uh, um, excuse me, Devin Leary, barely, I almost said Dennis Leary, who is, who is the comedian, but Devin Leary, uh, he barely even played. When he played, he was awesome. But even when he was out, that team was still good. They're playing a Mississippi State team that was not very good uh, in week one against Louisiana Tech. I would lean NC State, but let's be honest. You can't bet. You can't bet NC State. I mean, betting on NC State is like betting against the Harlem Globetrotters. You're just doomed for disaster. So that's another interesting one. Um, You know, uh, another SEC game, I'll say really quick, South Carolina at East Carolina. The point spread there is kind of wild. South Carolina opened as about a two-point favorite. It got to the point where East Carolina was actually favored at one point, and then you get back down to where – uh, South Carolina is again favored, so that is one I'll stay away from. And then Pac-12 after dark, it's kind of the same deal what I just said. Uh, you know, Stanford is playing at USC. USC is about a 17-point favorite, and that just feels like one that I will definitively stay away from. I do not trust USC. I do not trust uh, Clay Helton. And so because of it, I will be staying away from USC. They're another team They rallied late. They beat San Jose State. It looked convincing. It was not. Trust me when I say that. Uh, In terms of my gambling picks, and by the way, I hope to have a gambling sponsor officially announced by this time next week. My gambling picks for the week. I didn't even mention Texas A&M, Colorado. That's another one. I think Jimbo Fisher just takes the air out of the ball in that one. And so my gambling picks for this week, I do like Ohio State as a 14.5-point favorite at home against Oregon. I do like... Uh, Texas A&M, Colorado to go under. That was one, I, like I said, I didn't talk about a ton. I do like Iowa, Iowa, over, Iowa State, excuse me, four and a half over Iowa. I do like uh, Texas and Arkansas to go under 57. I do like Kentucky to beat Missouri by five. I do like Michigan, Washington under. And finally, I should mention, by the way, the, the, uh, the Holy War between Utah and BYU. I do like Utah to win that game. They are a seven-point favorite. Those are my picks. You can find them at AaronTorresOnline.com. The new AaronTorresOnline.com is launched. We got a bunch of NFL writers, some good college football writers, and all of my picks and all of my articles are up at Aaron Torres Online. Also, I'll be posting a graphic on Instagram if you want those picks. But again, I like Ohio State minus 14.5 over Oregon. I like Texas A&M, Colorado to go under 50. I like Iowa, Iowa State. I like Iowa State minus four and a half. I like Texas and Arkansas to go under 57. I like Kentucky to win by five plus against Missouri. I do like Michigan, Washington under, and I like Utah, BYU. Last little thing, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, um, but BYU, I mentioned BYU. This could be the last year BYU is an independent This could be the last day that BYU is an independent is because Friday afternoon, at some point, the Big 12 is expected to announce official expansion plans. And as we all know, Texas and Oklahoma are leaving the Big 12. They are going to the SEC probably no earlier than 2025. People keep saying it'll get earlier. I don't know if that happens. And the Big 12 has announced, or they haven't announced, but on Friday they are expected to announce they're going to add four schools BYU is one of them, Cincinnati, Houston, and Central Florida. And so let me say this. You know, this is one, sometimes in life, right, I come on this show, I yell and scream, I'm supposed to have this big, strong opinion about everything. This is one that I I really don't have a strong opinion on, and let me explain why. When Texas and Oklahoma leave the Big 12, I think it's worth noting, no matter what happens, you are not going to be able to replace Texas and Oklahoma in terms of their prestige, their history, what they bring to the conference. There's nothing you can do if you are the Big 12 to replace them. I actually used this analogy earlier on Thursday, but it reminds me of, remember a few years ago when Golden State and Cleveland were like the two best teams in the NBA and Golden State won the first year and then Cleveland wins the second year. They come back, they win the NBA Finals, and then Kevin Durant comes to Golden State and Golden State steamrolls Cleveland in the finals that year. They sweep them 4 nothing. I bring that up because I remember that summer. I might have talked about it on this podcast, but I remember talking to people in the NBA. Golden State wins year one. Cleveland wins year two. Year three, Golden State gets Kevin Durant. And I just remember talking to NBA people, and it was like, there is no trump card if you're Cleveland 
to put you over the top when Golden State gets Kevin Durant. There is no equivalent to Kevin Durant that you can go out and get if you're Cleveland to top Golden State once they got Kevin Durant. At that point, you just got to ride it out and hope everything works out. Uh, but there's really nothing you can do. And so I bring that up because it kind of reminds me of the situation with the Big 12. When the Big 12 learns that Texas and Oklahoma are leaving, there's nothing the Big 12 can do to match those two schools leaving the conference. And so, like, on the one hand, I give them credit because they kind of did about as well as they could. Now, I feel bad for the AAC. They're going to lose Cincinnati, uh, Central Florida, and Houston. But in terms of how good the Big 12 could do, they did about as well as they could do. Cincinnati is a college football power right now, okay? Luke Fickle is awesome. Really, really, really good coach. He may leave at some point, but they are really well-established, really talented program. And they they just have a great culture. They're winning. They're doing everything right. They pay Luke Fickle well, whatever. Central Florida, I think, is kind of an emerging power in college football. Gus Malzahn is now the head coach there. They have this incredible recruiting base. I think in the transfer portal era, they will be a great drop-down school. A lot of kids from Florida go to the SEC, go to Florida, go to Florida State, go to Auburn, go to Alabama, go to Georgia. Doesn't work out. You go to Central Florida, you ball out. I would also say from a basketball perspective, I think it actually works out really well. Houston just made a Final Four. Cincinnati's been really good. BYU's been really good under Mark Pope. And I didn't even mention BYU and Houston football. BYU went 11-1 last year with Zach Wilson, number two overall pick in the draft. Um, and Cincinnati, of, or excuse me, Houston with Daniel Holgerson, I think they have a chance to be really, really good this year. And so I bring all of it up to say, on the one hand, like I give the Big 12 credit. They did as well as they could. On the other hand, I'm also just going to say it. I don't think that like this saves the respect, the self-respect of this conference. Because at the end of the day, so much of this conference's identity was tied to Texas and Oklahoma and what those two schools brought to the conference. And I don't think that bringing in Central Florida, bringing in Houston, bringing in Cincinnati, all of a sudden changes the dynamic in terms of how good this conference is and how well it is respected nationally. And the crazy part is this. I'll tell you right now. You really actually look at the teams in this conference, I think you can legitimately argue the Big 12, even when Texas and Oklahoma leave, it's probably top to bottom a better conference in college football than the ACC. Uh, you mean to tell me you, you take out Clemson out of the ACC, you start lining up teams. Central Florida, Cincinnati are basically as good, if not better, than anybody currently in the ACC that's not named Clemson. Uh, you know, the, the rest of the Big 12 will find out. But what's interesting to me is just kind of the perception of what this conference is going to be. And what's interesting to me is like, again, I understand why they expanded. I just don't know if it was necessary, right? Like we're going to this 12-team playoff era. I don't know that this moves the needle a ton in the 12-team playoff era. Now, maybe it does. Maybe Central Florida stays at a really high level. Maybe Cincinnati stays at a really high level. Maybe some of these schools actually elevate the football conference. But this is just one where I think from a public perception standpoint, I think this will be viewed as somewhere between, uh, you know, in basketball, we call it a mid-major and high major. It's not quite the SEC. It's not quite the Big Ten. Frankly, even with the brands involved, I don't know that it's quite the Pac-12, uh, but it's not going to be the AAC, the Sun Belt, et cetera. And so it's one where, like, I just, I really have no strong opinion on. Like, the Big 12 felt like they had to expand. I get geographically, Houston's a perfect fit in that footprint. I understand BYU actually, believe it or not, makes a ton of sense because they are in the mountain time zone, which means now you can actually play late evening kickoffs. So you know how we have those Pac-12 after dark games? Well, now the Big 12 has a 10 o'clock, 10.30 Eastern time window where they can now play games. That made them appealing to this conference. Um, and I get it from Cincinnati. They now have kind of a travel partner with West Virginia. There's a team uh, for West Virginia that's a little bit close. You don't have to fly across country. I'm just saying, is like this is one I just have no strong opinion on. I know I say I have no strong opinion. I just talked about it for 10 minutes. But it's just one where, like, I get that the Big 12 had to do something. But is anybody, you guys are fans, reach out to me, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. Shoot me a DM. Shoot me a DM on Instagram. Send me an email at Aaron Torres podcast questions gmail.com. But I don't think anybody's going to look at this conference and be like, oh, they are a power five. Like the power five is back. 
No, I think we're going to be like, they're good. Like, they're whatever. They're not the SEC. They're not the Big Ten. And then, by the way, if USC or UCLA ever blows up in the Pac-12, if any of those kind of schools blow up, if anybody, if Florida State comes back or Miami comes back in the ACC, I'm just saying it's like, it's just, it's one of those, it's going to happen. It could be announced as early as Friday, but I just don't see uh, where everybody gets super excited about it. All right, I think that's it for this segment of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. I know I say it every time. I was hoping to do 20, 25 minutes. I'm at 38 minutes. So what I want to do now is get out of here. And what I want to do now is welcome in Jay Wright. Jay Wright, the Hall of Fame basketball coach, head coach, Villanova, two-time national champion at Villanova, three Final Fours, coached the Olympic team this summer with Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr. And this is just a great interview. We talk about the Hall of Fame. We talk about um, his relationship with Greg Popovich, what he learned from Kevin Durant, who I just talked about, from Damian Lillard. We talk about all sorts of good stuff. He is going into the Hall of Fame this weekend and make sure, uh, first of all, I should say thank you to the Hall of Fame who actually helped me coordinate this interview, get Jay Wright on, but the Hall of Fame ceremonies are this weekend and make sure that if you are not following Basketball Hall of Fame on Twitter or Instagram that you do that. It is at Hoopall on Twitter and at Hoopall on Instagram. But again, they were so great helping me set this up. Jay Wright, a Hall of Famer going in this weekend with all sorts of really talented people. Chris Weber, on and on and on and on and on. Before we get out of here, I want to remind everybody, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Check out the new website, AaronTorresOnline.com. A lot of good NFL coverage from my NFL guys. I'm obviously doing the bulk of the college football stuff. Really good stuff, AaronTorresOnline.com. And with that said, that is all for this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank you all. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel Hates My Voice. Again, Jay Wright going into the Basketball Hall of Fame this weekend. Uh, make sure to follow Hoopal on Twitter and Instagram. That is all. Here is Villanova coach and Basketball Hall of Famer, Jay Wright. All right, joining me via Zoom. Very excited to have this gentleman, uh, two-time national championship winning coach at Villanova. And within the last couple of weeks, six weeks or so, an Olympic gold medalist and now a basketball Hall of Famer this coming weekend in Springfield, Mass. Coach Jay Wright, how you doing? Hey, Aaron, good to talk to you, buddy. So, first of all, when I just say that, Hall of Famer gold medalist, I mean, does that, how does it feel? I mean, you know, you and I have talked in the past before, I mean, you start at the University of Rochester. You have all these stops along the way. You've obviously been at Villanova for a while. But let's start with the Hall of Fame. I mean, I mean, you're going in here in just a few days. You will forever be kind of, uh, you know, part of, of basketball and college basketball history with all the all-time greats. What does it feel like to realize that Jay Wright's name and, and you know, Villanova basketball to an even larger degree is going to be in that Hall of Fame in Springfield forever? I don't know if I've, I've really got my head around this yet, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> it was um, surreal, you know, that, that weekend in, in the spring that we went up there when the 20 class was inducted and they, they announced our class, you know, and just to be there with all those guys for a couple of days there, you're just walking on cloud nine and you're, you're kind of out of reality. Uh, then you come back and it's right back to recruiting and talking to 16 year olds about, begging them to come to Villanova and you're working with freshmen on the court and aren't listening to you. And you're, you're right back humbled again. And, uh, you know, I'm coming off the Olympics where, where I was an assistant coach, very humbling. So um, I think when we get up there this weekend, I think uh, it'll get back to that kind of dreamland. It's, it's, it's something that's just incredible to experience and you almost can't believe you're going through it. 
you know, everyone has kind of their own plan, their own this, their own that. I mean, are you having a bunch of ex-players, family, friends? I mean, it's obviously a celebration of not only your career, but Villanova basketball, all the people that I know you know helped you get to this point. Uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers for for the evening of the, the 10th and the 11th, but uh, anything special planned with, with the guys and girls that have helped you get here? You know, it was a really um, strange challenge that uh you, you kind of feel like it's a wedding like you want to you want to invite people you want to show your appreciation and your recognition that you know they were a big part of you getting here but you don't want to put that pressure on them that they feel like uh jay invited me now i got to go up there for the weekend you know because you know so many people would just be they would do it out, out of out of respect you know so we we kind of opened it up for you know our players if they if they asked they were they were, um, you know, they, they were welcomed and, and given a ticket and some of our former players. And then my, my former college coach and and um, Mike Near, the guy that gave me my first job and my high school coach, obviously my mom and dad, those kind of people uh, are going to be there. So it, it's going to be, and, and we'll have a good Villanova contingent there. They're they're a loyal group. And, and I like that you said it that way, Aaron, that um, I do feel like Villanova is, is being inducted into the Hall of Fame. I've obviously been a big part of my life, you know, and my wife's a Villanova grad, and it's I, I'm really happy for the, the basketball program um, that Villanova is going to be a part of this forever. Coach, I don't want to date you, but, you know, you got a big birthday coming up here in a few months. I mean, how cool is it that your parent? I mean, you just said your parents will be able yeah. to experience that with you. How cool is that? incredible man incredible uh and, and my dad's probably the most excited person about it he he's uh he's really fired up um and he's going on he's like 88 years old so it's it's pretty cool that he could be there um and and we're really we're really excited about that as a family that that, that my mom and dad are going to be able to be there Fantastic. What about this summer? I mean, probably the first time I would assume or think that you've been an assistant coach in a long time. I mean, I assume it's the first time Steve Kerr has been an assistant coach in a long time. Greg Popovich, obviously leading Team USA. Uh, you know, one thing I, I even remember dating back to Coach K when he kind of took over the program, whatever it was, 15 or so years ago now, him talking about the experience of learning from the NBA guys. Did you, what was it like for you to not have to come up with every play call game plan rotation and, and to be able to sit back and absorb what these great players and these great coaches that you were around, you know, being able to experience that as well. That was a, a great uh, part of it. It really was, you know, you just, you know, you felt like you were around basketball royalty and, and you just had so much to learn and, and this was a unique situation because we were, you know, we were quarantined the whole time. We were together every day for 37 days, same room, sat in the same seats, ate breakfast, lunch, dinner, watched our film together, same room, drank wine at night together, <laughs> same spot. But, and we were, you know, we were sharing life stories, basketball stories, um, family stories. You, you learn so much. And same thing with the players, you know, we, we practiced every day, which you, you wouldn't do all the time, but because we were quarantined in our hotels, we felt like, you know, it was better for them to get out of the hotel and just get in a gym. You know, it was the only time we could really get out. So we were in the gym every day. And when, when practice was over, we, you know, we'd sit around in the gym because we didn't want to go back to the hotel, <laughs> you know, we talk basketball, talk strategy with the, you know, with the players and hang out and, and, um, Really, I, I, one of the great learning experiences I've had, and um, and 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 really one of the most gratifying athletic experiences I've ever had, um, comparable to national championships, because it was mm -hmm. such a difficult road. Even though it's not supposed to be for USA basketball, it was, and I know no one wants to hear about that, and I get it. But there there was a lot of challenges, and 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 we all felt it. So we really felt like we bonded going through it two-part question you know Kevin Durant's a guy uh you know I, I've gotten to know coach Barnes a little bit who obviously coached him at Texas and and you know coach Barnes talks about his work ethic dating back to 17 18 years old one what, what was it like to be around him every day I mean you know I, I've said 
Like this is a guy that had every reason to opt out of the Olympics coming off that injury a year and a half ago. And it's clear that he just loves basketball and loves to hoop. So what was it like to be around him? And then is there anything that you can take from whether it's him or those other guys of just, you know, you got a 18, 19 year old in the gym that doesn't want to practice or doesn't want to do that. And you can now say, you know, look, I was around Kevin Durant for six weeks, eight weeks. I was around Damian Lillard, Devin Booker, Drew Holiday, and they do X, Y, and Z. And there's no reason that you guys can't do the same. You're absolutely right about Kevin Durant. You know, um, in, in 2019, when we had the World Cup team, I can't remember if he was injured or something happened. He, could, he wanted to play for that team. He couldn't play. And he came and spoke to the team before we left for Australia. And, uh, and I remember thinking, wow, man, this guy, this guy's a basketball aficionado, not just a talent, but he knows the game. He understands motivation. He cares about USA basketball. I remember we, we were out in LA. He came all the way out to LA to, to, um, you know, to talk to the team and, um, and then working with them on this trip, you know, he was the heart and soul of this team. And he was there from day one, you know, we, we had guys, you know, that, that tested positive that we lost. We had guys that, you know, that came in late from being in the NBA finals, but Kevin was the rock every day and to see him in practice every day. As I said, we practiced every day. And then he's got this routine, this shooting routine that, uh, you know, we, we didn't have ball boys or managers because of COVID. We, we couldn't have extra people around the team. So myself and Steve Kerr and, and Lloyd Pierce, we were like, we were the ball boys, Matt. We were, we were rebounding and passing for these guys, which was fun, but you know, you did it with Kevin many days and you saw his attention to detail and, and his professionalism. It was incredible. And um, I think generally with all the guys I've shared with my players here that um, you, you've got to understand their, their commitment, the way they take care of their bodies, how much they sacrifice to do that, you know, being away from their family for 37 days and how much they love the game and, um, and how they each have their, you know, they come in practice, but then they have their own routines to get their own shooting in. Like you, they're doing more than just practice, just games, their preparation and in, in, in game plans. Um, and they're the best in the world. So if they're doing that, you know, you know, how much better do we have to be to keep up with them? Very good. Couple questions about your team and, and we'll get you out of here. The first one, you know, uh, I'm going to date myself a little bit now. So I am a UConn guy um, and I was there in 06 uh, when UConn and Villanova traded number one back and forth uh, for many weeks in a row. Uh, and this is not, uh, you know, relive the glory days for me kind of deal here. But, you know, you kind of that was really the time where it was before this kind of pace and space that we live in now. But you had Kyle Lowry, Alan Ray, uh, uh, Alan Ray, Randy Foy. Foy. I'm blanking on a name or two, but Mike you know, you, Nardi. Mike Nardi. Yeah, he's with you now, right, as an assistant coach. And so exactly. Tell us how, because it, was, it wasn't by design, uh, and I don't want to say, you know, you reinvented basketball or anything, but now seeing four guards out there the way that Baylor played or the way that Gonzaga played, I mean, that's stuff that you guys were doing 15 years ago. So I was thinking about that as I was prepping, uh, thinking about the games at Gamble and the games uh, in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, I just want a little story time with Coach Wright, to be honest. <laughs> They were some great games, man. I, yeah. and, and I remember uh, when they were number one and we beat them here at the Wells Fargo Center in Philly, and then we had to go back. And I knew that was not, that was not going to be pretty. Not with Calhoun's teams, man. And uh, they, were they were ready, man. We, we, uh, we do that little handshake, you know, before the game, and they didn't shake hands. I was <laughs> like, oh, well, this, these guys are on another level. for this. And, and we had a – we had a bloodbath up there. They they got us up there, but um, they were they were some great games. Those those UConn teams were were incredible. Um, but you, you know what, Aaron? We we um, in in 05, We had we we spread the floor with three guards, and Curtis Sumter was like a stretch four, and that was kind of rare in the, in, in that time. And remember, UConn used to always have the two bigs, man. And, and that was that was the battle. Like we were. When we got them at the Wells Fargo Center, we spread them out. And when they got us, they pounded us on the glass. And uh, 
Curtis Sumter in 05 in the NSA tournament towards ACL. And we had a couple of young big guys and we had Kyle Lowry as a freshman coming off the bench. And we thought, you know what? We want Kyle Lowry out there as much as we can. So we're going to, we're just going to start him. And we had, we started Kyle Lowry at six, one, Mike Nardi at six, one, uh, Randy Foy at six, four, Alan Ray at six, three with uh, Jason Frazier at six, nine. And we played four guards, you know, and we, and we played Carolina in the sweet 16 lost by one, um, and they went on to win the national championship. We thought, this is pretty good, man. It really wasn't the plan, but we, we like playing this way. And then when we started 06, Curtis Sumter tore his ACL again. So we just went right back to it, and we played the season that way. And then we've stuck with that ever since. Very good. Well, you know, bringing it full circle to this year, um, the one-time uh, exemption rule, you know, you guys maybe got uh, more advantage out of that than anybody. For people who don't know, you had two guys that were set to graduate, maybe frankly by technicality have graduated, but get the extra year, Colin Gillespie, Jermaine Samuels. What were those conversations like? How did you end up back, getting them back? And, and how excited are you to have them for another year? Because, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but it feels like it, ch it changes the trajectory of the team just having two more vets back from what was already a really good team last year. I, yeah, I agree, Aaron. I mean, we, we were planning on not having them, obviously, and we, and, we, and we still thought we would be a good team, you know, and um, getting them back, uh, their talent level, their experience, their, their maturity, their leadership is, 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 is monumental. Uh, and, and as far as the conversation, I, both Jermaine Samuels played last season with a broken finger. And um, so when the season ended, he had to have surgery and he didn't, he didn't want to go. He's just now, you know, coming around to form. So he, he knew he would have missed NBA summer league. He would have been going to, he couldn't go to workouts because he had surgery and, and Colin Gillespie, as everyone knows, hurt his knee. And he was going to be in the same situation, wouldn't be able to go to NBA workouts, wouldn't really be at 100% maybe until October. He didn't want to start his NBA career that way. He had, both of them are close friends. They had a chance to come back. So they both told me pretty early they were coming back. And that was an early Christmas present. Yeah. Don't know, Sue. That, that, was a, that was a thrill for us. And uh, it gives us great depth and great leadership this year. You know how um, I know, obviously, you were away. You just mentioned two of your veterans did not practice during the summer. Uh, what do you expect? I mean, I know it's super early. I know you probably weren't part of a lot of the summer workouts like you normally would be. But I would have to imagine, I believe it's four starters back off a Sweet 16 team that won the Big East Championship, uh, you know, probably had a much higher ceiling if, if all those injuries hadn't happened. I mean, how excited are you to get all these guys back and kind of get to work over these next few months? We are. We're, we're fired up. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting because guys like Jermaine and Colin, who, you know, have been around, they've been out for a long time with the injury. So they're, they're kind of excited to be playing again. You know, it's, it's rare to have a fifth year guy like in the month of August or September ready to yes. be excited to play, you know, but they've been out for so long. And um, and, and so it's and, and we got some good young guys, too, that, you know, are, are, are really they got a lot of attention this summer by our assistants who did a great job uh, because the older guys were out, you know, and, and injured. So um, it, it's shaping up that, that we've got good depth and we've got good leadership and experience. You got to play the season. You know, you, ne you never know, but uh, we're definitely fired up about it. Last question. You kind of just mentioned fifth year guys. And I was thinking about this in the lead up to the interview. Um, you know, you guys have kind of made your program off, development and, and red shirts. And, you know, you go through the list. I mean, I don't remember everybody, but Dante DiVincenzo, I know took a red shirt. I mean, guys that are really good now, NBA players, has any of your approach changed or your staff's approach changed with the one-time transfer rule with everything going on in college hoops right now? Because, you know, you guys are kind of a program that have made your bones off, take your time, development, be patient. Um, and, you know, I don't want to stereotype or generalize and say that nobody's patient anymore or anything like that, but it's obviously a new world and it's changed. And I'm just curious how you guys have kind of adapted to what you guys do on an individual, on a day-to-day -day basis. We, we are, we are still looking for guys that, that, that want to develop, you know, that, that come into college thinking, I, I want to mature. I want to grow intellectually and I want to grow my game, you know, and, and I want to go into the NBA ready. Like, I want to know I'm ready.
Um, with that said, you mentioned it. There's so much change. The one-time transfer with NIL, the, the world's changing. So we have to be open and we are to how that affects how we have done things. We can't just say, all right, we've had success doing it this way. We're going to stick with it. We're, we're open to, you know, we really haven't been a program that's had a lot of transfers. I think we got to be open to that, you know, um, with the NIL, you know, how's that going to affect, you know, may, maybe some more one and done guys might want to stay in college next year because they're making money, you know, they, who knows? So we've got to be open to it all. So I, I, this is a time where we're kind of monitoring everything that's going on and, and, and being ready to adapt. Very good. I, coach, I could talk to you all day, but I know you got other interviews. It's a busy couple of weeks. Uh, congratulations on the success. Hall of Fame coach, uh, Jay Wright, Olympic gold medalist, and of course, two-time national champion. I appreciate your time, coach. Uh, hope to do it again soon and best of luck as we get closer to the season. Thanks, Aaron. Great talking to you, buddy. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.